Let's pray. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Dear friends of Christ Church Kelowna, it's a great joy uh, to be with you this afternoon. Uh, it's, there's something about you pray for a people and you in your heart, you, you imagine them, and you, I think of you on a Sunday afternoon, week by week gathering. Now soon, uh, John is uh, saying it'll be a year, but it's so much better to see you and to be with you this afternoon. And I rejoice in what God is doing in your midst. Um, we, uh, as the uh, Diocese of the Anglican Network in Canada, uh, one of the joys, uh, uh, sort of the, what gave birth to this thing called Anik and the Anglican Church in North America uh, was not always happy. But in fact, um, one of the really happy things is that in the midst of our scrambling for spiritual coverage and help, we were driven to fellowship with friends around the world that we might not have got to know if it hadn't have been for the kind of mess we were in. And that includes East Africa. Uh, and East Africa, uh, of course, you may be aware that there was a great revival, which actually some of us were there for what's called the GAFCON conference in Nairobi in 2013. Uh, and there we heard about literally waves happening from the late 20s the, uh, right through to this day. The East African revival continues to have its effect. Uganda and Kenya uh, and uh, Rwanda. What I'm trying to head towards is in fact, out of the East African revival, you would never have a person preach or speak at the front of the church without them saying something about their personal faith in Christ. Even a bishop is not allowed to just get up there and launch into a sermon without giving some sense of the people knowing who they are in Christ. So for a few moments, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself, not because it's a particularly interesting story. Actually, it isn't. And if you might want to sleep now, that might be. But if for me, it's the story of the grace of God at work in my life. I'm one of those few people who actually grew up in an Anglican family. My grandfather was an Anglican priest. His name was Charles Masters as well. And he served in small town Ontario, St. Mary's and Stratford and Wyerton and places like that. My father intended to follow in his footsteps and went to Wycliffe College in Toronto, fully expecting to be ordained. Uh, and but at the, by the time he was ready to be ordained, he had decided he was disqualified, and he was right, because he didn't believe in the resurrection. And so he stepped aside from that. He went to Oxford. He did a doctorate in history. He became a history professor. He went to the University of Manitoba and there met the person who was to be my mother. And in that time, in his mid-30s, he went through a crisis whereby he, uh, uh, he feared death. Now, the irony there was that he lived to be 93. But anyway, he was afraid in the mid-30s of dying, and so he returned to the New Testament. And as a historian concluded, that if he had any integrity at all, he had to acknowledge that the resurrection really did happen. And as a result, he was driven to a glorious conversion, 
And of course, the impact of that was great on himself and my mother, and then ultimately us five children who came later on. My sisters, there are five of I have four older sisters and myself, um, seemed to fall in love with Jesus from a very young age. But I was the delinquent one who, uh, you know, I believed, and I, I, uh, but I was apathetic and had no intention of living my life for the Lord uh, and thought quietly I would leave that aside. Uh, by then, we had grown up in the eastern townships of Quebec. We moved to a place called Guelph, Ontario. Uh, and there, um, because I met some guys, I went to a, a young people's group called the, at the Guelph Bible Chapel Young Peoples. Uh, and there, uh, over the next few years, I heard the gospel repeatedly, for which I'm very grateful. And we went on a retreat one time, and I don't know if any of you know Ontario, but Caledonteen Ranch is a pretty famous place. Uh, and there, uh, two things happened for me. One was that playing football Saturday afternoon, I broke my collarbone. And the second was on Sunday morning, when the, the man who was preaching that weekend, who was from People's Church, preached the gospel, he gave an invitation. Uh, and uh, I remember he spoke about the Lordship of Christ. And I had a deep sense of me being a shell of a person. On the outside of an ear, even of Christianity and of respectability, seeming path that looked like it had the prospects of possibly being successful, and yet inside nothing. Uh, and so in the traditional form, when he invited heads down, eyes closed, if anyone would like to put up their hand and receive the Lord Jesus, uh, I did just that. And I went for a walk that afternoon and I asked Christ into my life. Uh, and I knew he did because I knew that he, he keeps his promise. Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will he eat with him and he with me. Did I open the door? Yes, I did. Did he come in? Yes, he did. Because he promised he would and he always keeps his promise. In fact, one of the passages which was so meaningful to me in those early days was from John 10, uh, the great passage on Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. And in verse 27, he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I had a keen sense of my capacity to always to fall. I could not think of anything I'd ever set out to do in life whereby I hadn't eventually given up on it. And so the prospect of walking with Jesus for the rest of my days seemed like something that was highly unlikely and something that I had no reason to have confidence, certainly in my capacity to do so. And so John 10 was for me in those days so important because I knew it wasn't me holding on to Jesus. It was me being inserted into the hand of the Father and not even I was capable of prying open the hand. He's strong enough to keep even the likes of me. And I have continued to look to that passage as being central and, uh, and I continue to walk with the Lord this day, now over 40, I was 18, 47 years later, uh, because, because of the faithfulness of God. 
I was at the University of Guelph, and uh, there were a number of, uh, I was involved in InterVarsity, which was very helpful, and then later the Navigators, and then I came out west to Vancouver. And while there, I was trained, which was very helpful in me uh, in a number of things for which I hold precious. While here, out west, I say here, um, I, uh, I went for a, a, a day away where I was asking the Lord what he had for me, and I uh, was in Luke 1 and read of the encounter of Zechariah with the angel Gabriel who spoke about the birth and the coming of John the Baptist. Uh, and uh, the angel Gabriel, of course, quoting from Malachi 4, said, And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, there were two primary things that struck me about that that I thought was important. First of all, a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. It seemed to me that it's important for us to understand that the return of Christ is the central issue, is for those who love his appearing, that that's something that we are to dwell on and make it the focus and seek to be ready in our lives. And, uh, and so the, the Matthew 25 passage about the 10 virgins, about the being ready. Um, so that, and the second thing was, turn the, uh, a people prepared for the Lord, a people. And I had a sense that I wanted to be involved in, the, uh, in a people, little old ladies, seven day old babies, uh, everything in between. Pre preparing a people from the coming of the Lord. And I interpreted that, that I was to be a pastor. And so I heard the call and eventually started making plans to try to get theological training and, and uh, end up uh, as a pastor. Um, I, I went to St. John's College, Nottingham. Michael Green, if you know Canon Michael Green, was the principal there, although he left the year I got there. Uh, but nevertheless, it, he was representative of the kind of people that were there. And it was there that my wife and I were married in the middle of my first year, and we spent the first three years in England. While there, and I know this is way more than you bargained for, and maybe you didn't want to know any of it, but I'm just carrying on here anyway. Uh, while there, I, I looked back to, to coming to Canada, which was, of course, the plan. I came from the Diocese of Niagara, who considered themselves to be the most liberal diocese in the Anakin Church of Canada. Uh, in fact, they, uh, they perceived that New Westminster was a close second, but for them, we were proud, or the, the diocese was of that. Uh, and uh, the bishop then, and, and followed, was very much <coughs> described himself as the Jack Spong, if you know John Spong, uh, of Canada. So there was, there was clouds on the horizon. You might wonder why in the world would I come back even to that. But I felt I had a commitment. I felt the Lord wanted me to do that. And while there, my wife and I, in the Bible study that we were in, came upon Psalm 138. David says this. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. 
If you, uh, if you compare that, for instance, with Revelation 3, which is the letter to the church of Philadelphia, you find that the very same things, your name and your word, are what are, are described. God says this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have denied my name. In a very, for us, dramatic way, my wife and I made a commitment to the Lord, which was not only to walk with him, but it seemed to us the path and the place of the blessing of God is where his name, the name of the Lord Jesus, is lifted up and his word is honored and obeyed. And so we, we made a commitment, which was, Lord, we don't know how this is gonna go or what we're gonna do, but we're committing ourselves by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the spirit and power of Elijah, praying to turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children, that we'll be able to honor the name of the Lord Jesus and, and live, seek to live in the abiding in the word of God, honoring it, seeking to obey it, and proclaim it. Well, I'm so glad that those things were dealt with over there before we arrived back because it served us well in a variety of situations. And as, as our life in ministry, which was actually largely very happy, I became the rector of a church called St. George's Lowville, which was just in a rural church outside Milton, Ontario and north of Burlington, Ontario. And there we stayed for 28 years and we saw God do incredible things. It was a wonderful place for our children to grow up and we loved it. But as things happened, by 2000, um, I feel like the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night, three nights in a row. And, and I felt that I was supposed to write a booklet, a track, never written a thing before or since, but the theme was the gospel still works, and I did that. The other thing was that the message was if you're connected to something, you're connected whether you know it or not, and whether you like it or not. And what that meant to me was that we were connected to the Anakin Church of Canada, which was a profound and important connection. And we felt that, uh, as we pondered that, that the profile and the way we were dealing with things in the church that I was at was actually, we tried to build a wall between us and the Diocese of Niagara. And if they forgot about us, we were happy. If the bishop forgot about us, we were happy. And that was our strategy. And so it is that we, that's the way we survived those many years, and it served us well. But suddenly now we felt God was saying, that's not good enough. You cannot build a wall. You, uh, if you are connected, you're connected. And we felt that meant we had a responsibility to the Anakin Church of Canada and our diocese. And out of that came a connection to what was called the Essentials Movement, because we saw that as the best hope for the recovery of biblical Anglicanism in Canada. So um, I got involved in, in Anglican Essentials, eventually was the national director and traveled the country in 2002, there, uh, there was in New Westminster, the first diocese in the whole Anglican communion made a decision to, in the face of the clear teaching of Bi the Bible to, to take a step 
uh, which was to, to operate contrary to what the Word of God said. Um, so essentials had this crisis, which was, what do we do? Do we consider this as an essential? Is this simply a pastoral issue? We concluded it was an essential because Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It struck at the heart of the word of God. It struck at the heart of the Lordship of Christ. It struck at the heart of, of creation and salvation itself was at stake as we looked at 1 Corinthians 6. And therefore it was an essential and could not be dodged, though we would like to have dodged it. Out of that, for our church and for others, we ultimately ended up in February 17, 2008, seceding from the Diocese of Niagara and becoming one under Bishop Don Harvey as our bishop, as part of this thing called the Anakin Network in Canada. Now I share that with you, and you probably know the history of all these things, but I feel that as your Dawson Bishop, you have a right to know something about who I am and my heart and a little bit about what I've been involved with and how God has worked in my life. Um, Bishop Don um, consecrated me and uh, Bishop Trevor Walters and Bishop, Bishop Stephen Leung in, in November 2009, I think. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so, uh, and then uh, in 2014, uh, in July 1, uh, Bishop Don handed over in a very simple service in a place called St. Hilda's Oakville. Uh, he prayed for me and he transferred the authority, spiritual authority, for this diocese which spans all of Canada and even a little bit into New England. And so I, I covet and value your prayers so much because we have a sense that God is calling us to build biblically faithful, gospel-sharing Anglican churches across the country. We have a sense that in the midst of the sadness of the, and the brokenness that led to the formation of this thing, there is an opportunity for the gospel, which is we're thrilled to be part of. And I'm thrilled and have a sense of the joy that you are part of this and are very much on the front lines here in Kelowna. Now, this is all by way of introduction to 2 Timothy 2. <laughs> so I don't know if you have your Bibles and I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna say a few words about this great passage just by way of why I, we're here in Kelowna, first of all, is to say that uh, Resurrection kindly invited me, Terry Lamb invited me to come and do a, a, a Lenten day, which was yesterday, uh, and it was a delight. And we spent the day in 2 Timothy, that's why uh, I asked John, if we could uh, spend a little bit of time in Timothy because it was something I'm living in right now. Uh, it was also a very big day today for resurrection and for some of us, Bishop Don Harvey uh, flew all the way from Newfoundland to be here for this weekend, specifically for this morning, because during the service there was the installation of an order for men called Sons of the Holy Cross. And, Terry Lamb is one, and Bishop Don has accepted the position as patron to give spiritual care and direction to this new movement. So that's something that happened in our midst today, and so that's why we were here in the area, and I'm very grateful for the invitation while here, because I couldn't imagine being here in Kelowna uh, and not having a chance to see all of you, uh, and I'm grateful to have a chance to open the word a little bit as well. My text, what I want to say just a few words about, is 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. 
Paul says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I find this verse of scripture, for me right now, to be one of the most inspiring, most challenging, most uh, important portions of scripture. And uh, I find it to be uh, something which frames my thinking. You might think when someone says I endure everything, anything, for the sake of anything, you might think that's hollow words. Kind of like Peter saying to Jesus, don't worry Jesus, I'll be there, you know. And then of course within moments he's denying his, his name. But this is not clearly, it's not empty words that the Apostle Paul is speaking. First of all, note that he says that they also may obtain salvation. This is very personal for Paul because he knows the reality of the saving work of grace in his own life. It's not a hypothetical thing for him. It's not a step back and you know this concept of salvation out there somewhere. He's thinking in very personal terms. And in fact, you know, if you read Acts 8 and 9 or 22 or 26 or Galatians 1 or 1 Corinthians 15 and on, you'll know the story of Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus, the enemy of the cross, the enemy of anyone who named the name of Jesus. And God in his mercy met him in the risen Lord Jesus so that he could describe himself in 1 Corinthians 15 as, as having no right to be called an apostle. He was the last one to see the risen Lord Jesus. But he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. So when Paul says they also may obtain salvation, he's talking about something in a position that he himself resided in. Not because he deserved it, and that's very clear, but because of the grace of God. This verse of scripture is all the more astounding when you consider the situation in which he's writing 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy uh, is, is uh, very clearly, uh, if you chapter four, verses six to eight, he says to Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. That's very clear it's imagery language of speaking of the fact that he's about to be martyred. See, when you read Acts and you come to Acts 28, you'll remember that it sort of just trails off. Paul's in house arrest, speaking the word as people come to him, the whole Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard being deeply affected, all of Rome being impacted by the ministry of the word and the gospel there. Uh, and him writing letters to places like Philippi and so on. But you want to say, what happened? <laughs> Did he die? You know, when he said in Philippians 1, I don't know what I should choose for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But what happened? Well, tradition states, and it seems very clear, that in fact he did get out after Acts 28, and there was a period of a few more years of ministry, fruitful ministry. 
Almost certainly he traveled and picked up Titus and Timothy and Crete and did a tour of Crete and preached the gospel, leaving Titus there. And then on his way to Macedonia, he, he swings via Ephesus. You remember in Acts 20, uh, he had spoken to them as those uh, where he said, uh, uh, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. But he also spoke of the fact that wolves would come up from within in lambs, uh, in lamb's clothing and would devour them. And that's exactly what was happening. And so he left poor Timothy to deal with this mess in Ephesus. And then from uh, afar, he writes Timothy, 1 Timothy, and he writes Titus. He invites and he sends Tychicus to Crete and he invites Titus to come and meet him in Nicopolis and they winter there. And then somehow, probably in Troas, Paul is arrested. Possibly Alexander the coppersmith was involved in manipulating things. A guy who had been in Ephesus likely before. And then Paul is dragged off to Rome and this time it's very different. This now, time it's now bound in chains as a criminal, as he says in verse 9 of 2 Timothy 2, with the certainty of martyrdom before him. And it's in that situation that he writes. He says, for instance, in 2 Timothy 1.15, that you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Even names some names. This is a, a very depressing situation. A guy who's given his life, who's had all those things that are listed in 2 Corinthians 11 happen to him for the sake of the gospel, but now in prison about to be martyred, and when he casts his eye over where he's been, Virtually everybody has left him and even those who are still enlisted, nobody's available. And so in 2 Timothy 4, he talks about so-and-so's there and so-and-so's there and only Luke is with me. It's a very depressing picture. And he's writing to Timothy who also must be depressed as he deals with Ephesus. And yet, he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And there's a little bit of a tinge of spitting those words out. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. But it's what's happening. For which I am bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Dear friends, what he's saying is the gospel is worthy of my life. He's saying to Timothy, the gospel is worthy of your life, of suffering. And there's a lot of suffering in 2 Timothy in the midst of what is an eminently and positive letter for the gospel. Nevertheless, there's a steady diet. 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, um, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. 2 verse 3, he says, share in suffering as a good sh soldier. Uh, and, and on. 3 verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
When Paul talks about the gospel, he talks about something which ropes you into a situation where there will be suffering, but he says the gospel is worthy of your life. Why so? Remember Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He said he's the one who has risen from the dead, who was, as it says in Romans 1, declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection. But he's not only the risen one, the vindicated one, but he's the one who in the flesh is the offspring of David. He's the one all of history had been waiting for. And the drum roll got louder and louder. And so Paul's saying, you know, when in Psalm 2, all the nations of the world are poised, uh, you know, to... Uh, uh, to do away with the anointed one, God laughs. This is my beloved son, it said in his baptism. At the transfiguration, this is my son. And so Paul is saying, remember Jesus. He's the real deal. He's the one. He's the man. He's the one who conquered death. In fact, he says that very clearly in chapter 1. It's a very interesting couple of verses of Scripture where he says in verse 9 of chapter 1, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. And one of the things I loved about the, a, a clear theme of what the worship songs that we've been singing this evening was that clear understanding that it's not by our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, this is a God thing, the gospel. This is a God initiative from beginning to end. It has nothing to do with our capacity to live it out. Or it's, so it's about his purpose and his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I love the Psalm 139 that John reminded the children of. But he's talking here in terms of the overarching thing of eternity and saying, Jesus gave this grace and purpose before the ages began. It was a done deal. That's why Paul could endure for the gospel. And more than that, he goes on and says, who is this guy and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through what? The gospel. Paul is talking about what is the power of God for salvation to anyone and everyone who believes. It's, it's, it's the good deposit, he says and if, in 2 Timothy 1.14. It's something which is precious and must not be tampered with. It must be held intact because it speaks of Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light and is found in the gospel. And so it is that Paul is saying very clearly that in fact, he endures everything for the gospel because it's the means through which people obtain salvation. They also do, just as he did. This is an incredible, simple fact that the living God, the eternal God, the one who already gave in his purpose and his grace, figured it all out, all before creation ever began. 
and then set in, in this motion so that, for instance, Paul could say in 2 Timothy 1.1, he spoke about his calling as being according to the, uh, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's the theme. That's the heart of God. And all of that is through all eternity. And so it is that he set in motion these things and then in history, he worked out his purposes in time and space in Jesus. He was manifested. He appeared first as a baby in Bethlehem and then grew in stature before God and man. Lived his life, sinless life. Died, rose again, ascended to heaven. So he's saying, and he manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. This is big stuff. This is the big picture. And Paul has a sense that by his little old lips, opening and proclaiming this message, he's inserting the dynamite of the gospel in such a way that it's God's pleasure to take men and women, boys and girls, and attach to them as they receive by believing that that in fact salvation, a transaction which is of eternal nature, happens in the life of an individual. That's the way salvation is obtained. It's ever been that way. Genesis 15, 6 makes it clear that it's always been that way. The just shall live by faith. It was counted to him as righteous because he believed. Paul endured for the gospel because he remembered Jesus. He remembered who Jesus was and what he did and what that means. And he remembered that he's faithful. So it is, for instance, in 2 Timothy 1.9, it says this, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. He remembers that, in fact, it's all about him and not us. So he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is when he exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1. He's saying, it's all about him and his grace, Timothy, so even you can do it. He's faithful because it says that even when the word of God appears that he's bound, the word of God is not bound. And it reminds us of Isaiah 55 where it says the word will accomplish what has been set forth. This, this incredible thing. Get involved in the Bible and watch God do what he does. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I have a picture in this, you know, it's said, you know, he says it's a trustworthy saying. For me, it's like a ping pong game, you know. If you died with him, you'll reign with him. If you endure, you know, uh, uh, sorry, if you died with him, you'll live with him. If you endure, you'll reign with him. If you deny him, sadly, he'll deny you. But make no mistake, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And it's the zinger. He catches us off guard and, and hits us with a fact which is unexpected but is absolutely fundamental. God is faithful. 
Has he said it and shall he not do it? Has he spoken and shall he not make it good? It says in Numbers 23. Dear friends, the invitation tonight, this afternoon, is to enter with Paul on this company of those who choose to endure everything for the sake of the gospel. See, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge that the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The purpose of God is not to condemn, but to save. And the way he applies the salvation is through the declaring of the message. Will you be involved in this great enterprise? Or listen to the words of Isaiah 49. He says, it's too light a thing that you, speaking of Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so when Paul speaks about that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, all glory redounds to him. So I, I made a commitment uh, a, a, a long time ago, which was as I traveled around, uh, <clears throat> no matter what situation, I would always seek to invite people to respond to Christ. The message of the gospel, what would be a tragedy, is to think about being involved in the proclamation of the gospel and never personally appropriate it. And so I'm simply saying to you, dear friends, and I can tell by your sunshiny faces, you all, most of you, maybe all of you, already know, know this one that I'm speaking about. But lest there be any, lest there be one, I simply say February 14, 2016 would be a good day to cash in on the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. But for the rest of us who are in Christ, who stand with Paul and on his shoulders and can say, I am ready to endure everything for the sake of the gospel. To enlist and pray for a refreshing of the Holy Spirit in the spirit and power of Elijah so that God can bring about a harvest in these days as he would most certainly want to do. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this for the last will and testament of Paul in 2 Timothy. We thank you that, uh, that he, though knowing he was about to be poured out as a drink offering, was so confident in the gospel and knew it was worthy of his life, suffering and death. Lord Jesus, I pray, if there's any here who need to respond to you, that they would open their doors of their life right now and say, here, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. I come, in to you, come into my life right now. I want to be yours and follow you in the family of the church forever. And for the rest of us, Lord Jesus, we long to be able to say with clarity and with power with the Apostle Paul, I'm ready to endure everything for the gospel so that others may obtain the salvation which is only found in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen.